the hope is that we can innovate out of the problem of climate change. And I firmly believe that we can do that. So then the question is, how to, how to get that innovation? And really, there, there are three ways to go about it. You can regulate toward it. You can incentivize toward it. Or you can price toward it and toward this innovation. And so the regulatory approach is the approach that people who generally believe in government feel comfortable with. It's a respectable position. It's not the position we take at RepublicEN.org, but there's nothing like inherently evil about it. It's just that some people believe in the goodness of government to regulate. We happen to believe it's pretty inefficient. We also believe that the problem with domestic regulation is you can't impose it on China and India. And if you can't, well, then you're cleaning up the local air, which is great. That's a good thing to do. But you're not solving for climate change until you get China and India in on the deal. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. Today, we are talking with Bob Inglis, who served six terms in Congress as a member of the Republican Party, most recently from 2005 to 2011. As we think it's important to bring in voices from all sides of the climate discussion here on Animalia, so we can work together and stop the divide that partisanship creates. As you'll learn from Bob, when he started in Congress in the 90s, climate change was nowhere on his radar. However, that changed in his second three-term stint as he recognized the massive threat of global warming and need for climate action. And he was willing to stray from the party line, as they put it in D.C., in order to stand up for what he thought was right to save this planet. As it turns out, Bob is playing a significant role today in making climate action a partisan issue and pushing those on the right to take it more seriously. Since leaving office, he founded Republican EN, an organization dedicated to pushing the conservative climate change movement forward. So what does that mean exactly? We sat down with Bob to find out. Well, I I wanted to start with your background and, and why I think it's very inspiring. I believe you you served two stints in Congress, right? Bo- both three terms, is that correct? Yes, that makes me a re- recidivist, I suppose. <laughs> and what is stands out is I believe in the in your first stint in the '90s on the climate change front, on the global warming front, kind of in, as as many were back then, more or less different. And then you've talked about sort of the journey you took in your second stint, starting with your son, which I want to hear about. But I, I believe it was your stance on uh, climate change that sort of lost you that that fourth term, and the fact that not only did you not sort of capitulate in order just to stay in in Congress, but double down and double down on fighting climate action from within the conservative movement even harder through Republican and the work you've done since then. I think it kind of speaks. It's not. It's just nice to see. I think for those of us not in politics, we see a lot of politicians just be politicians and to see someone stick to their values, even if it means losing an election and just doubling down and who knows what, what the future holds for you to, you know, even come back in, whether that is or not, but I don't know, it's, it's inspiring and, and kudos to you for, for sticking to those, to those values. 
Well, thanks. The, the worst thing in the world is not to lose an election, it's to lose your soul. And so I lost an election, but I didn't lose my soul. So that was that was good. But it's, it's also true. I, I committed a number of heresies against Republican orthodoxy at the time of that Great Recession, the darkest days, really, of the Great Recession, where there was so much uncertainty to the economy. I mean, that's the 2010 cycle. And things are really dark. The wheels had come off the financial system in October of 08. And then we entered the that 10 cycle with a lot of uncertainty, houses underwater, people not certain about how they're going to pay the mortgage payment. And so in the midst of all that uncertainty, it appeared to a lot of people, I think a lot of conservatives said, well, why is English talking about climate change? That seems a long way away. And then there are there these other heresies that I'd committed, voted for the President Bush's rescue of the banks. That can't be forgiven by the Tea Party. For some reason, they thought it'd be good to have a, a real good depression, they said, to clean out the, the miscreants in the financial system. And I was for comprehensive immigration reform, although we never called it that. Let's see, what other sins did I commit? Probably the district could tell that I didn't have it out for gay folks. And, but my most enduring heresy was just saying that climate change is real and let's do something about it. Because it, it seemed that I'd crossed to the other other team. I was marching with Al Gore and people like that, not with real conservatives. Yeah. And speaking to that, been in and around Congress in D.C. for three decades. When, when in your mind did climate change become so uh, such a political device of this issue was it was it gore in that in that era or what at what point did climate change become so so deeply partisan or, or it always been that way from from your 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 earlier days it was actually it's it's clearly it's a clear time demarcation here about when it happened i mean it's hard to it's hard to force this memory but early 08 newt gingrich was on the couch with Nancy Pelosi. We don't agree on much, do we, Newt? No, Nancy, but we agree climate change is real and we need to do something about it. There was an ad that the two of them cut with the Capitol in the background. And uh, so that was early 08. By the end of 08, Newt had switched. We don't know, he said. Two intervening events. One, the financial crisis, the wheels coming off the financial system in October of 08. Second, the election of a secret Muslim, non-American socialist to the White House in November of 08 and the person of Barack Obama. Of course, he's none of those things. And sadly, my party made him those things or called him those names. I'm afraid that a lot of it was signaling that, yo, there's a black man in the White House and it's to our shame that that's what we did to Barack Obama. And so that's when it changed. And then Newt wasn't the only one. We go down the whole list to the Republican leadership saying, oh, we're not sure about climate change. Meanwhile, the astroturf of the Tea Party was being rolled out, especially in conservative districts like the one I represented. And it rolled over anybody who was uh, willing to say, climate change is real. The data is still the data. It doesn't matter how we lost the election in 08. It doesn't matter that the financial crisis is here. It's still data and it's still real. So I, I just continued to say that. And that, that wasn't uh, good political timing on my part, I suppose. 
Yeah, I guess not, not good political timing, but I think it's important. It catapulted you into the work you're doing today um, and the efforts you're making to, to, to make climate change bipartisan, not partisan. So I think it, in the end, it might have been for all of our benefit. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't have chosen the path, but what, I'm thankful to be on the path because the, the most you can hope for out of a career is to be about something big enough to be about. And this is surely big enough to be about. So I'm grateful for the way that it turned out. And I'm also uh, grateful for the fact that that isn't the end of the story. The, the 2008 is when it started falling apart. The consensus on climate started falling apart. But it, that, that decade of disastrous disputation, as we call it at RepublicEN.org, came to an end. It ended in November of 18 when Republicans lost control of the U.S. House. And it's fully dawned now on people like Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, that you can't win the majority back without winning suburban districts. And you can't win suburban districts with a retro position on climate change. So so the good news is that uh, what happened to me in uh, the 10 cycle and what had started in 08 ended in 2018. There's still some vestiges of that disputation machine around, but it's getting weaker and weaker. And things are really much better among Republicans now than they were back then. In terms of the conservative kind of climate movement, at least from your point of view, what are, what are the main main pillars of that? I know carbon tax is a big one. We're, we're going to talk about that in, in a second, right after this. What Beyond carbon tax, what are some of the other pillars as you identify them for climate action within the conservative party? There are three ways to go about it. You can regulate toward it. You can incentivize toward it. Or you can price toward it and toward this innovation. And so the regulatory approach is the approach that people who generally believe in government feel comfortable with. It's a respectable position. It's not the position we take at RepublicEN.org, but there's nothing like inherently evil about it. It's just that some people believe in the goodness of government to regulate. We happen to believe it's pretty inefficient. We also believe that the problem with domestic regulation is you can't impose it on China and India. And if you can't, well, then you're cleaning up the local air, which is great. That's a good thing to do. But you're not solving for climate change until you get China and India in on the deal. And so so, so that's the limit, we think, of regulation. And of course, of course, the people who believe in that path would say, well, yeah, but China is going to follow our moral lead. Uh-huh, we say at RepublicEN.org, how's that working out for us on things like human rights? And so, and then the second way you can do it is you can incentivize toward it. Uh, and this is where I think there'll be a first step among many in my party, the GOP. They'll be saying, well, let's, let's incentivize toward that innovation. Let's give clean energy tax credits and, and preferences. And uh, those are all good in a, in a way. They, they accomplish some things, early adoption of technology. The challenge there is similar to the challenge with the regulation approach, though, is can you get the whole world in on that? Because, again, if you're not getting the whole world in, you're cleaning up local air, which is great, but you're not solving for climate change. And so, so the incentives, if they don't create cost crashes 
sufficient to make it affordable, that new technology affordable in China and India, well, then all you're doing is incentivizing American corporations to clean up our local air. And then the third approach is the one that, of course, we're for is is this idea of pricing in the negative effects and then using the wisdom of Milton Friedman and uh, rock-solid conservative economics to fix the problem. There are lots of versions of how this should be implemented, and I'm sure you've seen them all and have run analysis on all of them. There are folks that think any national carbon tax will not do the trick if it does if it doesn't happen in cooperation at a global level with the major powers it's it, it'll be just detrimental to the country that's uh, putting it in place and not impactful there are folks that think uh, carbon tax will increase the cost of certain energies in the short term and have have an adverse effect on more of the marginalized and working class citizens here where where do you stand on terms of how would you implement the carbon tax so the, the we think that the best way to impose a price on carbon dioxide is through a simple carbon tax. And what conservative would be for a new tax? I mean, it sounds at first blush like, well, that's a crazy idea. If you're a conservative, you're proposing a new tax? Well, yeah, it's a very special kind of tax. We'd make it two very special things about it. One is uh, it's should be revenue neutral, and second, it should be border adjustable. So those are all government terms, but they have real practical realities. Uh, budget uh, or revenue neutrality means that you would put on a carbon tax, but you would either reduce taxes somewhere else or dividend all of the money from the carbon tax back to the citizenry so that there's no growth of government. That's important to us as conservatives. That we're we're not involved here in a scheme to grow the government. We want to fix climate change by fixing the problem of economics that has an environmental consequence. That's what climate change is. It's a problem of economics. And so we we figure that if you fix the economics, you can fix the environmental problem. And so that's a so you apply the tax and you make it revenue neutral, and then the second you make it border adjustable. But first, about this, how to impose a tax, presumably at the mine and at the pipeline is where you apply the tax. And the good thing about that is there are only about 2,000 companies that either mine coal or put stuff in a pipeline in America. So it's a very small job for the IRS. 2000 taxpayers, they could do that in a morning. And so it's it's a uh, it's, it's, a, it's administratively simple. But then the price of everything goes up downstream, of course. The, the inputs of coal into a product are reflected in the price of that product. The price of gasoline goes up. So you put on a $25 per ton price on carbon dioxide price of gasoline goes up by 21 cents a gallon. The price of the average home's electricity goes up by $11 a month. And so the price of everything goes up. That seems terrible, right? Who wants to, English for Congress, hey, I want to make sure that the price of everything in your life goes up. But here's the thing, it's revenue neutral. We're going to give the money back to you in a tax cut, preferably if you ask me, it should be by 
FICA taxes, payroll taxes, because that's a way of dealing with the regressivity of a carbon tax. And yes, I think that conservatives like me should be concerned about regressivity, which means that if you put on a carbon tax, poor people are hurt more than wealthy people because they have less efficient houses, perhaps less efficient cars, and they, they're going to pay through the nose in a carbon tax. And so one way to address that regressivity is to reduce the, the, the payroll tax, which is a whoppingly regressive tax that we have in America. Whether you work at Microsoft or McDonald's, you pay 12.4% on the first dollar of income. 6.2% you see on your paycheck in the FICA box. What you don't see is that McDonald's or Microsoft is paying the other 6.2. So it's a whopping 12.4% regressive tax. So you reduce that and you put on a carbon tax, the Congressional Budget Office says that the bottom 70% of Americans do better. And so that's pretty exciting. That's one way to get to revenue neutrality. Another way is to dividend the money back. That's, that addresses regressivity as well. And at republican.org, we're completely ecumenical, completely open to any, any recycling proposal you want to give. And we're, we're, we're happy to talk about dividends or tax cuts, particularly FICA tax cuts. So that's a, that's a key component of it. And then, then the other key component, of course, of this carbon tax would be the, the border adjustment. And it's just crucial. This is the thing that makes it so that the world gets in on this deal. And, and by the way, that revenue neutrality thing was all about conservatism. But this border adjustment, everybody agrees with. You won't find anybody that's not for this idea of imposing the tax on imports coming from countries that don't have this, the equivalent pricing of carbon dioxide. So the way that work is this, China is shipping in a sheet of flat steel right now through the port of Philadelphia. Came from a Chinese state-run industry. They stole the technology. Okay, so those were digs from a conservative perspective. And and so there, there they've got this sheet of flat steel. It's on the docks in Philadelphia. We apply the tax based on American equivalent flat steel. They object in the World Trade Organization. They say, you can't do that. That's an impermissible tariff. We think they lose that case based on precedents in the chemical industry that say you can tax stuff coming in based on the content of the goo coming in. And this would be a content tax. So if we're right and it's upheld, 24 hours later, China would have the same price on carbon dioxide because they do have an amazing way of reaching consensus in China. And so the reason they do that is that they'd say, we're paying a tax in Philadelphia that's being remitted to Washington. If we'd collected that tax internal to China, the tax money would have ended up in Beijing and the sheet of flat steel would have been landed in Philadelphia with no entry fee, with no border adjustment. So 24 hours later, they'd have the same price on carbon dioxide. No international agreement. This is very important for conservatives to hear is that we're not talking about complex negotiations at the UN, a lot of bowing and scraping and, and decorating over this and that. No, no. It's just a bold commercial move by the United States it says we're going to price carbon dioxide into the price of products. 
and you're going to pay that tax on entry of your goods into this country. And then it becomes in our trading partner's interest to follow our lead. And, and so the beauty of it is no international agreement there. By the way, we think it was good for the, President Biden to reenter the Paris Accord. There's no reason to withdraw. It establishes a will to do something, doesn't establish the way. What I've just described, we think, is the way to get it done. It adds to that will. Yeah, and I, I've always said that the Paris Accord is more of a signaling component than than like the real real steps we need to take. But those signals are important. Yeah, it's very important because you you establish a will to do something, then you start searching for a way. Well, we we think that it's it's good that all the nations of the world accept us. We're committed to that, and now we're committed again. So that's a good thing. In, in terms of what you propose on getting a revenue neutrality, particularly with the the changes the, the 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 drops you would make in the FICA tax the income tax, it makes sense what you're saying in theory. In terms of practicality of getting these things pushed through Congress, it seems like income tax is one of the most highly debated areas, and that any there's obviously the 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 left is very very keen on changing the tax brackets according to income and taxing those who make more more than they're getting taxed today, closing some of the loopholes that folks do do use to avoid paying taxes in the wealthier class. And those things are very real and they're very valid to me. But it feels like you can't make changes congressionally to income tax without tackling like all of those other things and all of the other hot, hotly debated things in the in the tax in the income tax space. So how like is it is it feasible for Congress to actually make an adjustment just for the sake of revenue neutrality with carbon without getting caught up in all of the other debates and entanglements that people want to make and change on both sides about taxes. It just seems like it's so hard to change tax law in in, in the U.S. because uh, there are so many hotly debated topics within that are hard to get bipartisan agreement on. Yeah, it's it was, it's definitely not going to be easy. I don't have any illusions about how this is simple and easy to get through Congress. It's it's really pretty difficult because this is a major change. The key is that it be bipartisan because if you want to make stable policy, it needs to be bipartisan policy. And so, yeah, there'll be a lot of give and take. And the difference um, here is that if if we, for example, reduce FICA taxes. Those are those are not income taxes. Those are taxes to support Social Security. So they, it makes it a little bit more complicated, frankly, because there's a question about whether you could do that in reconciliation, this process by which the, you can um, get something through the U.S. Senate on a simple majority vote. Because as I understand it, the Byrd rule prohibits any touching of Social Security in reconciliation. So the, the, there's a question, parliamentarians, a question for the parliamentarian there. And that may be okay because what it means is, yeah, you got to win some Republican support for this. And I'm okay with that because we're trying to make stable policy here. And the, because we're, we're seeing the whites of climate change's eyes now, and we've got to take a shot. We, we are real close to this danger. It's upon us. It's not like far off. It is here and now. 
And so you got to take a shot. It's got to be a good shot. You can't be doing something like a carbon tax, undoing it, doing it, undoing it. That's what they did in Australia. But here in America, because our economy leads the world's economy, we can't do that. We got to be, we got to take a good shot and make sure it's well thought out and agreeable to at least some on the Republican side so that you you end up with stable policy. Because what Obamacare taught us, I think, is that you know, if you do something on one side of the aisle, when the pendulum swings, the other side will try to undo it. And so we, we can't be that in that place in climate because we're literally in this one together. Uh, health policy, you can debate all day, and tax policy, you can debate, and social policy, you can, you can have all kinds of disagreements about. But this one, we're literally in it together. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've long been trying to push for Earth Day to be a global holiday every year in a, in a bigger recognized way, because I always say, like, regardless of what political party you're in, regardless of what your religion is, what you know, your culture, or like any of these things, we all need Earth. <laughs> like, like all of us need it. And it, it feels like that should become an event every April 22nd or whatever. I think that's usually the date every, every year, but we'll see if that, if that happens. Join us on March 6th for a very special virtual event we are producing with the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. There's lots to learn about the beloved giraffe that you may not know. And in this event, which starts at 10 a.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, we are going to hear from four incredible speakers who are working on the ground with the species to protect them in the wild. If you love giraffe, you're going to love this event. It's completely free, 100% free to attend. That's March 6th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. You can register, again, totally for free. If you go to our Instagram page, so Instagram is at I love Animalia. I love Animalia. We'll put the link in the description as well. Um, and you can go there to uh, register in the bio to the event. And we hope to see you there. All right, now back to talking to Bob. I want to, I want, I'm curious. I want to get your reaction to the Energy Act of 2020 and give you sort of the way I kind of parse it out in my brain and, 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 and hear, hear it from your point of view. It was applauded as a big win when it was passed. And a lot of, a lot of the conservative party. And at the time, of course, Congress and the Senate was uh, conservative led. And people on the both sides of the aisle were were a fan of it, and it, and it did make some important steps forward. It cut back, in particular, on hydrofluorocarbons, which are very, very toxic. They actually have a bigger role on a per uh, per unit basis of contributing global warming, but of course, they're not as big of an issue as carbon from a um, totality standpoint. They put R and D investment into renewables, although some debate is, was it enough. They put R and D investment into things like carbon capture, which is technology that's not yet proven. Of course, we saw the the typical kind of public display of Elon Musk putting his carbon capture challenge out there two weeks ago as Elon likes likes to make headlines and get attention. But I, I it's hard for me looking at that Energy Act to 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 feel like is it is it two steps forward, one step back in terms of did it go after fossil fuels enough? Did it like there was no carbon tax in there, right? There weren't even the things and the conservative principles on pricing that would be more aggressive towards 
pushing us towards cleaner energy. And I, I read it and I can't tell if, if it really was major progress or if it was just enough progress to kind of meet the bipartisan threshold, but doesn't move us, isn't incremental enough given the imminent threat of, of climate change. So what, what are your thoughts on that Energy Act and, and what was your reaction to it? Uh, I think it's a warm up for for a really big swing and uh, so it's 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 good to take a warm up swing and and to accomplish a lot in the process so the hfcs you're talking about that's that's a big big thing and so at least especially from the republicans perspective we want to celebrate and thank people like lisa Murkowski and rob portman for leading on this and um, getting to getting us to this place and sure it, it was it doesn't go all the way we want to go but it's a beginning and so we're really grateful for that and it's a actually like i say with the hfcs it's really big so i mean it's it's it's, it's more than a warm-up swing i mean it, it's we got a good uh for use a baseball analogy i guess we got a good base hit or maybe a double but we we really do need to swing for the fences for pricing, we, we believe, at republicen.org. But we also understand that we got a, we got a ways to go on convincing fellow uh, Republicans of that, of actual conservatives. It's really easy to convince them. All you got to do is show them Milton Friedman on the Phil Donahue show in the 1980s, a little clip that we've got on our website at republicen.org under the media tab. Phil Donahue asked uh, Dr. Friedman, one of Reagan's economics advisors, what would you do about pollution then, Dr. Friedman, if you don't want to regulate it? Friedman says, you tax it. You tax pollution. I mean, this is this is Milton Friedman, an actual conservative knows to sort of bow at the mention of his name, sort of a father of modern conservatism. And he, he goes on there in that two-minute clip, to explain the concept of internalizing negative externalities, where you don't allow a firm to get away with dumping on its neighbors and, exp- and, and imposing their cost of production on their neighbors without their consent. You have to have the government step in and say, no, no, you can't do that. You've got to hold your stuff on your property. You've got to be biblically accountable. You can't do on your property, something that harms somebody else's person or property. And and that concept of internalizing those negative externalities or that negative effect is rock solid conservatism. And so if you're talking to a conservative, an actual conservative, they get it. If you're talking to somebody who's maybe new to Republican thought, perhaps came in because of a doctrine of grievance, or you're looking at a politician who's sort of afraid of those people who came in because of a doctrine of grievance, then it's a more delicate dance. And you got to explain a little bit more about why it is. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to you, even if, even if you are one of those populist nationalists, to, to impose cost on a producer if they're dumping on their neighbor. Uh, you don't let people get away with that, right? We don't believe in that in America. Our, our faith traditions don't tell us that's okay. And so so it, I guess what I'm admitting, James, is it's going to take a little bit of uh, work there. It's not like we're, it's, 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 and it's going to be hard work. It's, it's not like it's a 
willy-nilly easy thing to get done. It, it takes some real good conversations in order to get people to see the wisdom of that. Yeah, and I can I can see it being a step in the right direction. And I, I also agree with that, as long as like what you're saying is we, we still need a home run. We still need a swing for the fences. Yeah. yeah. Getting getting back to your area of focus, in, in terms of the Green New Deal, I, I'd love to understand what in that legislature do you think goes too far? And then where and what in there do you think has merit? Because I imagine coming from your perspective and some of the things I've read up about your proposed policies and, 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 and thoughts in the space, there are parts of that that you would align with. And there's probably parts of that that you think go into that first category of, of too much regulation, too much government. I'm curious just to hear if there's a couple things that stand out to you that you can highlight where you think it, it does go too far in that direction. And if there's a couple areas that you think have, have merit where you, you, you are aligned with within that conservative kind of climate movement. Well, in the Green New Deal, there's merit in the passion and uh, focus. So we appreciate that. And that sounds probably uh, condescending. I don't mean it that way. I really do mean to appreciate the, the passion um, and the focus. There's a but coming, as you can tell. The but is that uh, above a but, it's if it's reduced to legislation, it's probably going to be regulatory, and it has all of those problems that I described earlier. Which is that regulation, from our perspective as conservatives, is clumsy. I think everybody can agree with that pretty much. It, it is. It's pretty clumsy to try to roll past my house and tell me, "Good boy," for having those solar cells, good boy for having an electric car, good boy for having a geothermal heat pump, whatever. I mean, you got to pay somebody to drive in the sedan, government sedan, to come by my house with a regulation book and check me out. That's really complicated. Isn't it better just to put the price on my meter and then I, in the liberty of enlightened self-interest, pursue my self-interest and you don't need any government sedan coming by my house to tell me good boy, because I'm acting out of my own interest. You don't have to tell me twice. And so that's so that's one thing. But then the other thing is really get the whole world in on this thing. And, and the Green New Deal has that weakness of, okay, so you do all this you know, regulating in America, you signal good things, that's all great. But... China doesn't necessarily cotton to our signals. I mean, we tried to get them to go along with us on human rights. They, don't, they, they disregard our views on human rights. And they do terrible, thing to their, things, terrible things to their people. It's a repressive communist regime. And so what are we, are we kidding ourselves? Are they going to do what we do just because they thought we were really particularly shining moral examples? I don't think so. You got to make it in their interest. And that's through that border adjustment we were talking about. So that's, uh, and I don't want to cast aspersions on the people that behind the Green New Deal. I think their their intentions are in the right place. It's just that what my side, my, my Republican side needs to do is enter the debate and say, okay, we, we, we hear your sentiment and we understand it. And now here's a solution that we would offer. And make that the deliverable of my party is a, is solutions at work. And and by the way, I'm sounding all this high octane conservatism here, James. When reciting Milton Friedman, I could also cite somebody else, which is Al Gore. What I've described here in this revenue neutral, border adjustable carbon tax 
is the same thing that Al Gore has been for for about 30 years. And so it's we, we don't mention that first off when I'm speaking to Republican audiences, but toward the end of the presentation, you can say that because would it be so bad if Al Gore also liked the idea? I answer, it couldn't be bad, right? That could mean that we bring America together and lead the world to a solution. And that's a good thing. So it really is, a, it's quite an opportunity, we think, to once conservatives realize the power of their own ideas and the strength of their philosophy as taught to us by people like Milton Friedman, then with confidence, we can go do the deal with the left and say, yeah, this works for us too. And isn't that great? The America coming together, lead the world. Yeah, I think I think I think that's that's it's it's a good it's a good mentality, and I think it's it's one that we more of us need to have in finding ways to kind of cross the aisle, as they say in, in Washington, and, and and work together. Two more quick questions for my side. A lot of companies, particularly last year, in the last couple of years, started to put out their own paths to, you know, net zero on their own agenda. I think some of this was reaction to letters the last couple of years of folks like Larry Fink, right, who from BlackRock, who has a big influence on the, the hedge fund and the private equity and, and, and Wall Street in general, who is starting to like basically pretty much say like, we're not going to continue to like invest our dollars in companies that are contributing to the climate problem. And I think uh, corporations are reacting to this. But I see so there's a lot of wishy-washy sort of things. I'll take deltas, for example. And I don't know if you've had a chance to look at Delta's path to net zero or not. But one thing that stands out to me that was troubling is they basically are kind of articulating their path to carbon neutrality by saying, we're making a bunch of investments in carbon technologies, carbon capture, things like that outside of our operations. And we're going to assume all of those technologies essentially hit and they all work to their utmost proposal utmost potential. And that is how we will offset our carbon. And no one bats a thousand in speculative investments, right? Like, no, it's not possible. And so I look at that plan and I don't see enough changes to their actual operations and how where they get fuel from and how they operate Delta. I see just a lot of speculative investments they're going to make and they're they're modeling out that all of them are going to work and that's how they're going to get to carbon neutrality and it just feels like a little bit of smoke and mirrors to me and they're not actually tackling the real core issue but just curious if you have any reaction to that or just any of the 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 net zero plans that have been proposed at the you know private corporation level over the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, of course, the, the good news is the smart money is moving. And so that's an important signal to the political class that when you see the smart money moving, in other words, BlackRock, for example, doing exactly what you just described, saying that we're not going to invest in people that can't show us a declining carbon footprint because they assume, and I think it's a good assumption, that a carbon-constrained future is coming. And if you can't show a declining carbon footprint, then your stock value is going to be punished. And so an investor like BlackRock is 
the smart money and they're sort of signaling something. And so that signal gets picked up by the political class and then they realize, oh yeah, there people are moving. Let's let's move with them. So that's an important thing. As it comes to, uh, when it comes to a company like Delta, I think that they are they're in a tough spot, aren't they? Because they're a company that needs a lot of fossil fuels at this point in order to operate, to fly us for where we want to go. And so either there's new some kind of new fuel or they do benefit from carbon capture and sequestration. That latter thing, though, is way beyond the capacity of Delta to create, I should think, because Delta is a big company and they've been very successful. They've had some trouble right now, of course, like all airlines do in the coronavirus times. But making carbon capture and sequestration or, or direct air capture, especially, I should be speaking of direct air capture, making that economic, wow, that's that's beyond Delta. And so, yeah, they're they're probably assuming some things there. But I think it, this is a Republican that I'm speaking. I'm a Republican. If I were still in Congress, I'd be voting federal money for real research on that direct air capture and serious money. Because the reality is a company like Delta can't do that by themselves. BlackRock can't do it by themselves. Really, that kind of basic research has to be done by the government. And I realize some of my libertarian brothers and sisters would would object to that. But we Republicans have typically said, sure, that's fine. That's a valid role of government is to do that basic research that individual companies really can't justify to their shareholders. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Real quick, just to, to wrap things up, what, what's, what are your high level thoughts to the Biden administration so far, three weeks, three weeks or so in? He's very executive order happy, but a lot of them have been pointed towards climate. It's been one of his kind of key pillars and one of his campaign promises that he's determined to deliver on. Just on climate, we don't want to address anything else with the Biden administration, but just on the climate executive orders to date, do you think generally in the right direction or do you think it's already pushing too far towards the regulation side and not enough towards the pricing and kind of free market side? I'm encouraged by what President Biden is doing on climate, mostly because he's making it such a high priority. This is the first time that's ever happened. And so it's a very good uh, signal from President Biden that he, he mentions it as one of his key objectives. And and so reentering Paris, as we discussed earlier, is a good move. And other signals in the executive orders have, have been positive. Of course, what we at RepublicEN.org want to see is especially him reaching out to Republicans in the Senate and in the House to invite them into the conversation. And that's, this is where I'm hopeful that Joe Biden can be sort of an LBJ nice master of the Senate. I read that book recently, and I will tell you that you don't want to pattern your personal life after LBJ, but especially your relations with your spouse. You really don't want to pattern after him. But so hopefully Joe Biden can be a nice master of the Senate and understand that you got these Republicans. You need their support. You need to make this bipartisan. Have them down for dinner. Have them in the movie theater for a movie. 
cajole them, talk to them about what matters to them, see if you can get them on the infrastructure package. Maybe that's a doorway in. In other words, reach out. Don't, don't, don't assume that you can muscle this through just on the Democratic side, because that's not going to make it durable. So, and in this, I'm counting a lot on Joe Biden's empathy, that life has really given him a lot of empathy. And maybe in this process, he can bring some healing to the country, is showing a way that Republicans and Democrats can talk and accomplish things together rather than be locked in mortal combat. And so I'm hopeful. Early signs, I think, are good. Yep. I, I agree. And I think it's also important that, I mean, it's like what you're describing is basically we want Joe Biden to be what we expect of a president, right? Which is not to be so partisan, but to sort of be a unifying force. And I think that is the expectation of the office. It's, I think, been lost a little bit recently and and it's on him to kind of restore some of that faith. Yes. What, sure. Two quick rapid fire questions we end, we end the podcast with. Just the first thing comes in your mind. What's a book out there that you think people would really benefit from reading as it, retain, as it pertains to the climate topic. What We Know About Climate Change by, by, by my friend Carrie Emanuel at MIT. What about a film or documentary series, uh, TV series, anything that stands out to you around in this world as well that you think people should go watch? Merchants of Doubt, uh, a great film by Robbie Kenner based on the book by the same name by uh, Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conaway. It's 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 a really great film that puts all this in in graphic relief. Awesome. And what is your favorite wildlife animal? Oh wow, favorite wildlife animal? Huh? Who has to be at the top of that list? Oh, gee, it's one of my favorites. I, I guess I'm always interested in seeing birds of prey. I don't know. They're just so majestic flyers. So I, I don't know. That's I tend to look at those very and say to anybody with me, "Hey, look at that! Look at that!" So maybe that'd be at least in the in the in the feathered world, that'd be the top. I don't know in the furry world. I don't know. I like bears and yeah. So <laughs> let's see in the finned <laughs> world. Uh, no, I keep on going. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and then you have to go to the the yeah. Scale. Oh, oh, I'm not real into um, scales. I will tell you, I'm I'm not real fond of creatures without shoulders. I must tell you, I'm not real good with those. They really frighten me. That's, that's fair. <laughs> that's that's fair. Well, we're right on time here at the top of the hour, Bob. I really appreciate the time. I know you're you're super busy, and I I'm very curious to see if your path will maybe take you back into DC at one point, because I think the the conservative movement, I, and I know you're still an active voice with what you're doing in the public in the end, and it's, and it's amazing, but I think even as a policymaker, we need we need conservatives like you with a seat at the table. So curious to see if that happens. If it doesn't, it sounds like you're still going to have a tremendous impact on the party and policies with the work you're doing with the public in the end. So, so thanks for well, It's great to be with you, James. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you. Yep. Have a, have a great rest of your day. See ya. See ya.